You're listening to Red Nation Online. Wednesday, December 3rd, I'm Ian Clark, and in this episode, I'm joined by Paul Marhew as East Side Stand Up Squared brings you an off-season episode called You Are the Prez. We know from a football perspective, the club president does not make all the decisions. However, in the spirit of a lively round of fantasy decision maker, as well as staying on top of recent news of TSC trying to fill the president role, we've made that the theme of this podcast. Paul and I have set up seven questions we thought were relevant to Toronto FC from the past season and heading into 2015, and bring in some voices associated with Eastside stand-up over the year. Also weighing in our discussion will be Steve Botcher, Aaron Nielsen, JC Plant, and Eric Anderson. What we're hoping for you to hear is a full spectrum of ideas and opinions on what TFC can do this offseason to try and avoid another year of disappointment. We would also encourage you to share your thoughts in the comments in the article so it's not an exclusive discussion amongst ourselves. With this all laid out, as always, thanks for listening. This is Eastside Stand Up. This is, I, I don't know if I call it a crazy coincidence, but, you know, the, the theme of this episode is going to be, you know, you are the Prez, and you are the president of Toronto FC, and I'm going to be asking a bunch of people questions surrounding, you know, operations and looking into 2015, and then this past week goes by, and all the talk is around who is Toronto FC's new president going to be, so I'm pretty excited, actually, that this worked out this way. Yeah, it's a crazy coincidence because when you told me what the uh, idea for the show was, I was really excited. Partly because I've been waiting a long time to wield that kind of power, but also because, like you said, uh, the announcement of a potential new president, two people they're considering, from what I understand. Yeah, two that we know of. So I guess you know you, you can be uh, large way and I'll be Osiak <laughs> <laughs> if we want to go that way. You can be the sort of like smooth North American and I'll be the hard, harsh, uh, curmudgeon German. I'll do my best. I'm from the Caribbean, so smooth will oh, work. Oh, yeah, there you go, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing was the crazy coincidence too is just that, you know, this was when we did the last episode of Eastside Stand-Up at the end of the season. I mean, this was the, this was the next pod that I had like laid out to sort of round off 2014 if I was going to maybe try to squeeze in one other one. But I really wanted to get, you know, I didn't want to necessarily hash over 2014 again. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people maybe want to forget 2014 in some ways. I mean, it does have some positives and some negatives. But, I mean, this team is always about turning a page. Yeah, well, I mean, 2014, um, it started differently, but it ended up kind of the same, right? Yeah, so I, I don't blame you for not wanting to go over the same things. Yeah, so you know what? Let's let's go into this then. Let's start this format that we're going to do, and start with the first question that's along that lines. And for the listener, this is what this is what the format of this episode is going to be. I mean, Paul and I are, are going to be the hosts, running through you know six or seven questions that we think would be important for someone who's taking over this club overseeing it from the very top and then we're going to have other voices come in that are associated with red nation alliance specifically no toronto fc well to get their opinions or get their thoughts on if they had this power 
how they would use it. And of course, the first question, Paul, is we are named as the new presidents of Toronto SC. From the outside, looking back on 2014, someone who's not associated with the club, but just someone who I guess, you know, has, you know, no bias, no connection to TFC. How would you look back on 2014 for this club? Well, uh, I guess you would have, well, you have to start off with, um, it was mixed, right? We had, you know, you could probably divide the season into two or three, I would think, you know, with um, the beginning doing relatively well. Bradley came in, he was playing fantastic. Uh, Defoe looked motivated. Uh, we were getting results. Seattle, Columbus on the road, uh, beat New York 2 nothing. And then I guess there's sort of the middle part of the season where, you know, the World Cup was happening. You know, we lost Bradley. We weren't dropping in the standings. We were still pretty high up there, but there wasn't that sense of, of I don't want to say dominance, but we weren't doing, we weren't doing it as, as nicely as we were in the first part of it. And then, of course, towards the end of the season, uh, a coaching change happened. Um, was that the right move at the time? In hindsight, you have to say no, because we didn't get the result. The whole idea was we had to make this change in order to go forward and, and make the playoffs, and, and it didn't happen. So you gotta you got to say, as an assessment, it was not a success. I don't know if it was a failure because some good things happened. We got our core in there, but you, you can't be happy with the way it was. Yeah, and I think, to keep my answer short, I think there's two things that, that I, if I was coming from the outside, I would say, to me, it looked like a team that underachieved. That would be the first thing, given obviously how much money was spent in the talent that was brought in. Certainly. But then the second thing I would say as the season played out and the way that it finished, you know, I would look back on 2014 as maybe a year where this team didn't have everyone on the same page. And that's, I think it's obvious by the way that you're finished that from the president to the GM, to the head coach, to some of the players, not everyone sort of knew the master plan or knew what the ultimate vision was for this club. I think they just started the year and threw threw him on the field and said, you know, you guys are talented, go make it happen. And that's something I think that needs to change. I think this club moving forward needs to say, this is, and, and it's not, I, I don't want them to say this to the fans. I want them to say this internally. I want them to say, we have a three to five year plan and this is how it's going to happen. I think 2014 would be looked at as a year in which the team did not meet expectations expectations and and that includes sort of the uh, the sort of base expectation of of making the playoffs you know furthermore the team i think underperformed based on uh, on the personnel available you know looking at the 2014 season as a whole i think the, the it became clear that the team was uh, tactically predictable and, and too dependent on a few key players overall i'd say it was a year in which um the team was not equipped to succeed over over a full season, we saw stretches where they where they looked good, and other times where they looked they looked very poor. And you know, when you compare them to the teams that were you know may, maybe made the MLS playoffs, you you can you can see that you know they're a level below that in in terms of all aspects of of their game and you know ball movement and you know having an identity and whatnot. Probably like many people, I think it was a disappointment in terms of team uh, not making the playoffs or having um, a playoff run. Although since the season ended and I wrote a review of what I thought the season was, you know, I almost think this season was as much about circumstances opposed to um, individual performances or how the team could have fixed it during the year. Um, you know, I think, you know, there's always the question about Gilberto and Defoe being able to play together 
Um, and there was always a question of putting too much expectations on Bradley. Again, I think, you know, when you look at the season in terms of like Hagelin and uh, other players, how they sort of developed and stuff like that, to be honest, I'm, I'm more positive going into this year than, you know, I, I, we were all positive last year with the hype of all these new signings and stuff like that. But in terms of team stability, I'm almost more confident now than I would have been a year from now. I think from an outsider's perspective, you look at it as more points than they ever got, right? More wins than we ever got. Didn't make the playoffs. So maybe a mixed bag and like hope for the future with the first season where you really went for it. Well, there are positives that you can draw if you really try and look for them, but they're just, they're so minor compared to the negative that existed for Toronto FC as a club for 2014. I think first and foremost, so much time and energy and effort was put into what this club could be back in the early stages of 2014 calendar year. You look at the, the press conference and spending all that money on a marketing campaign and buying a massive bus and then that awful word promises that brought up. It just, it gave this false hope that something good was going to come. And even without the promises, it ultimately came down to the fact that it was playoffs missed again. And for the fans, when you look at teams like, I mean, Canadian teams like Vancouver and Montreal who had playoff runs coming into the league after Toronto, um, Seattle, they came into the league after Toronto. It just, it's painful to consider the fact that Toronto has, they've been moderately close at times, but they've never been a proper playoff challenger throughout their existence. And to come in and tease this idea of promises, to tease this idea of designated players that are going to change things, it, it comes off as a major downturn of the season when you look at what it could have been from the beginning, I guess. If I want to roll now into the second question, Paul, I would ask uh, you, you know, what, if you're the new president of Toronto FC, what would be your top initiative or maybe initiatives for 2015? I guess player-wise, I would say that we have to get someone to uh, play with Bradley. I think what I noticed during the year was he was trying to do everything. He was all over the pitch. Um, he, was, he was trying to protect that back four. He was trying to get forward and create attacking chances. I don't know how successful he was that, especially after that initial burst. So that would be my priority, probably getting someone to play with him, whether that's an attacker, an attacking midfield, or a defensive midfield, but getting someone that he can rely on and he doesn't have to try to do everything himself. Yeah, I think for me, if I, I want to circle back to that last point that I finished on. I think that would be, if I was president, my number one initiative for 2015 is really coming in with a vision of what this club needs to be. And, and to take it a step further, I would come in and, and sit down with the front office, my coaches, the players, maybe the players second, and say to, my, say to them and say to us, how do we become champions? And lay out the roadmap of how we're going to do it and stick with it. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then take that and, and then from that point down, start executing the points of how we're going to make it happen. But I would, that would be my initiative for 2015 is to lay out taking Toronto FC to a title? I'd almost not even focus on the pitch at this point. It, after all, like you said, everyone knows the history of this club. It almost seems right to have the number one initiative um, be to give the fans something to be proud of once again. Because what really made this team something special back 
right in the early days, there wasn't even a goal scored yet, was the fact that people came just to have such a great time. And finding small initiatives to show respect to the fans and build this club up outside just who's playing and who's coaching. Yeah, there's definitely things that can be done on the pitch. There's definitely players that can be brought in. and Things that can make us proud. Reward the supporters who are still going to the games. I mean, something like you lose three games at home and then it's half price on beer until you win again at home. Like, you give someone a reason to go to the game. Say, we acknowledge you're here. Make Toronto FC as a club an experience for people. Make it feel more like an in-game experience that's as authentic as it would be overseas in established markets. Um, open up Demo or the Kia training ground for tours. Uh, you know, I won a contest once and I got to go see Demo field behind the scenes. And, you know, for younger fans, that will be such a great experience to walk pitch side, to sit in the seat that the players sit in before they go on the pitch. Not everything should feel like a marketing initiative. So making the fans feel proud of this club as the Toronto football club, that would be my number one initiative. Well, I think in general, and I think this doesn't only say for next year, but I think this has been the sort of history of TFC, is there needs to be a sort of greater stability with the club. There needs to be the addition of players who the team can look at for the next four or five years or three or four years as key players. Um, and we shouldn't have situations, you know, I'm not sure that Ashton Morgan deserved a greater chance than he got, but we shouldn't have situations where players sort of disappear um, even though they're still on the roster. Um, I think in the past, uh, you know, maybe not this year, but certainly in the past, one of the issues has is they haven't taken the greatest advantage of the talent that they've had um, and allowed guys to sort of stick around who are going to be key players on the club. So going forward, I think there needs to be sort of understanding and better ideas of what players you want, but there are also long-term plans on how to use these players so they're useful for years to come. Uh, top initiative is to uh, would be to qualify for the playoffs. But no general statements. Uh, you know why can't we be better or you know why can't we go for for the MLS Cup? I think that there's a clear, tangible goal has to be to make the playoffs. I think you know once once and for all that the team has to get that that monkey off its back. I think once it gets its monkey that monkey off off the, off the team's back, then they can they can really move forward. But right now, that's just sort of hanging over everything. And I think it would be particularly embarrassing if New York FC or Orlando were the, the next expansion teams to make the playoffs before, before TFC did it. If we can now go into the third question though, Paul, it's all kind of cascading, I think logically of where we go from these points and we're in the off season right now. And I'm sure we all look back on 2014 and realize there were some pieces missing. There were some things on the field that just weren't clicking that maybe the, the makeup of this roster isn't quite where it needs to be. However, if, we, if I can make this a tricky question and just lay this on to keep it as succinct as possible, uh, you know, as, as the president, uh, you know, you lay out that, or you're laid out from perhaps MLSE, that uh, you only get one key signing or you can only get one marquee player through the offseason. Where would that be in the field? Is there a type of player or a specific player in mind that you could see that would be an impact at Toronto FC for 2015? I think you'd have to try and start with uh, what are we going into the next season with? Because there are a lot of questions in terms of like existing players and what's going to happen with them. Um, we all know about Jermaine Defoe and whether he's going to be here or not. Luke Moore, there's been some rumblings about him having some options uh, overseas. So, you know, assuming that uh, that 
you know, what we have isn't going to change drastically, then I would probably, like I said earlier, want to get someone in there to play, play, play with Bradley. And that would be that attacking midfielder. You know, looking around the league, if not these names, I'm thinking of players like uh, Iguain, uh, Lee Wynn, guys who are creative, because I think that was part of our problem this year. We seem to get the ball in the middle, and we weren't sure exactly what to do with it. And in order to do something, we had to have guys like Bradley and like Gilberto, you know, running their ass off back to pick it up to try to bring it forward. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. But uh, you know what? I would maybe take. Uh, I don't know if I would call it an unpopular, an unpopular initiative. But uh, if I'm looking at this team and I'm thinking, you know, we got to start getting this right, I think I would maybe try to start building this team from the back. Mm. And with that in mind, I would be looking for someone who would be a marquee center back. Uh, I look at that the pairings and the, and the options this year, and they were they were just there was too the the spectrum swung too far in two directions of so experienced that Caldwell is now looks like he might be on his last legs mm. and not experienced enough with Henry and Hagland. I think we need to find a guy who's somewhere in the middle, who's in his you know mid to late twenties, has a significant amount of experience in terms of games played. And then can take over for Caldwell once he's no longer in the picture and be the leader for the young guys. Uh, I would think that might be the best way to go. And as well, I, I would also throw in, uh, you know, with this year's draft, I would consider looking at a keeper and bring in some really good competition for Joe Bendick mm. to have between the posts because he doesn't really have any right now. And I think you really need to, we need to take a hard look at where some of these games were lost. And I think on the defensive side, it was uh, pretty poor. Yeah, if, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm coming into this club and I'm going to run it, then number one is I need a keeper. Right now, you, we saw the difference, right? When we had you know a world-class keeper, because sorry, is a world-class keeper. So I'm not saying you're going to get that. But when you get a top keeper, the difference that he made, the, the, the presence, the, the distribution, it's the shot-stopping. Bendik has, I'm pretty sure, I haven't checked lately, but at one point he had the worst shot-stopping percentage in the history of the league. That's not good. He's a great guy. Everyone loves him, and he makes some crazy saves. But maybe those saves wouldn't be so crazy if it was another keeper. And I think that has to be the, the top priority. And sure, like you know, we're replacing um, a star, but you can you can look at models of you know scouting, right? Just if you're, if you, I think we're doing a lot better in scouting, but you can, you can get even better. Look at a, a Columbus, right? That terrible franchise. You know, somehow lucking into a player like Iguain, who really, besides his name, wasn't much of a pedigree. You know, growing up, Gilberto's a great signing. You know, get somebody else like that. Um, you don't have to go crazy. Get some solid players. You know, we we had one in Matias Laba. You know, we can do that again. I think the, the scouting network is there. And I think if we just don't try to go too big, uh, kind of stay in your lane. You've got Michael Bradley. Get a real keeper, and then you know. Go from there, and I think it'll be very successful. Is this assuming Defoe's not there anymore? <laughs> I, I guess if there's only one signing, it, it, for me, what what Defoe brought last year in that beginning of the season when he actually played um, was the fact that a proper goal scorer can taper over a lot of the cracks in the team. And there's probably two or three solid players at least that this team needs in a number of different positions to make them proper playoff contenders. But if if you can buy some time to work on those other areas, bringing in a solid striker, attacking midfielder, someone who can generate 
up in the final third that would sort of, you know, give fans that feeling of a win or a goal that you're not getting. And then eventually you can use that time that you bought to build the rest of the the, the team, whether it be defensively or uh, bringing in more solid midfielders to make the team stronger. And that area of the pitch, in terms of particular names, I'd avoid the expensive European DP. We've tried that. It's not really gone well. Um, I mean, like, potentially a dream list here, but someone like a Wondolowski, that'd <laughs> be right, Phillips. You know, I'm, I, I really like the idea of buying people who are settled and committed to the MLS because they know what to expect in the league and they are not dreaming or are going to have dreams of returning to Europe and just try to get the best you can in the MLS rather than looking abroad for a 35-year-old who's been there and done that sort of thing. Well, I think one thing to take into account is Toronto has yet to give their announced to which players um, they haven't released or, or haven't given options for next season. So there might be further <laughs> holes going at the start of next season. But to me, the biggest weakness was attacking midfield this past year. Um, I do think there's a bit of a weakness at centre-back, and I think there could be more... Ch- uh, other keepers to challenge Bendik for that position. Uh, but, you know, to me, the biggest issue or, or what we lacked the most was a creative midfielder, not only to create, you know, those opportunities for the forwards, but to give Bradley a break because I think what we were expecting from Bradley is to be a defender, a defensive midfielder, and an attacker, which was too much to ask for him. But if we roll into now question number four, Paul, you know, as as I said from the outset, this isn't just about personnel. This is all encompassing uh, in terms of how this club is being operated and the things that are going on. And I think, you know, as we're both season ticket holders, we've both been there essentially from day one and seen how this game day atmosphere, uh, I, you know, is this a bit, I don't, I don't think I'm being a little over the top by saying deteriorated. Mm. You know, it isn't what it used to be. And as we're seeing right now, these renovations are going on with the stadium between this offseason and next offseason to make BMO Field this great facility, but there are questions around the atmosphere and game day atmosphere and making BMO Field a fortress again. You know, as a president, you know, what ideas or thoughts would you have on making BMO Field, uh, you know, uh, a stadium comparable to Seattle, Portland, um, some of the big teams in MLS right now? I would say that you have to, you have to do two things. You have to get the people in there who do truly support you get them in here in there by keeping prices low we got 8400 new seats that are opening up um there should be an opportunity to get people who want tickets people who are big toronto fc supporters who you know maybe got priced out get them in there and then let them support and by that i mean uh don't be heavy-handed with security telling people to sit down and no cursing and no chanting let them support naturally and organically if I had, you know, if I had one initiative that I've been thinking about is now that there's two tiers, I would say upper decks, family sections, mm. lower decks. I like that idea. Let it go. Let it, you know, it can, they can, you can stand across, uh, across the bottom. Now that might, there'd obviously be maybe some complications in terms of pricing and, and existing and, and them getting most bang for their buck. But I mean, I'm thinking it from perspective of, again, like I said, making this stadium a fortress and with a roof coming in and the sound carrying, you know, do you just, do you just want the South end mm. delivering all the noise or do you want teams to be feeling it from all sides? Yeah. 
Um, you know, I, th- I, th- I don't, I think that's a little bit of a different vision or philosophy that I think we'd ever hear from MLSE mm-hmm. or Toronto FC, but I've always felt that, you know, from where we were sitting, I was sitting in, in the Northeast corner where it used to be uh, very vocal and almost a de facto supporter section. I always thought that would, I always hoped that would have been encouraged that away teams would come and feel uncomfortable no matter where they were playing on the field, whether they're in the South end or the North end. That's something that I think has really gone over the heads of Toronto C and MLSC of, of how they can make, you know, utilizing this field for a competitive advantage rather than just for, um, you know, a financial and fiscal advantage well, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, t- I totally agree. And I think, I think that idea is a really good one. Um, you know, because, you know, not to disparage people who want to come to the game, like families and stuff like that. And they don't, they want a different experience. Right. And it's important to give them that experience. And if, you know, having this new second level affords them the opportunity to, support the way they want to support, and like you said, make not just the South stand a fortress, I think that's a really good idea. And while we're at it, you know, maybe just from a field perspective, we can kind of tone down some of the advertising that goes on, because it seems to be every, there's always an opportunity to try to sell you something. Every five minutes, um, you're getting a sponsored message. And I think it's pervasive, and I think it, it breeds resentment when people keep having to be sold to like that journey. I, I think only one one thing is going to do that, and that's put a winning team on the field. Um, I think it's it's at the point where uh, you know there has to has to be a winning team for for people to get behind. Um, you know, there are some smaller things you can do with the with the in game experience. I think uh, you know, look at the at the schedule uh, and the time that the games are being played. I mean, too many times matches start. Um, you know, half empty due to people being late or not being able to get there. So I think, you know, look at what what's the ideal time for these games when, on weekends and, and the weeknight matches. Obviously, you have to do that within the context of uh, the television requirements. Um, and I also know a big part of this Renault sort of has the uh, the whole Argos to BML field, BML field thing hanging over it. If, you know, if I could look at it in that context as a, as a president, I would fight with everything I had to keep the Argos out of there. I think it needs to be uh, soccer specific and, and uh, you know, to really maintain what we have rather than even trying to build on, on what, is our, what is already there as part of a game day experience. It's interesting for me in the, uh, in the you know, I think we see the, the New England Revolution qualifying for the MLS Cup final and I think they're an extremely exciting team to watch. And, uh, you know, for me, I just, I, I, I couldn't, bring myself to watch their games at home. I think it just looks horrible at Gillette Stadium. And I know there's been pronouncements that uh, that, that wouldn't be the case, that uh, there's a way to make it work with uh, with the Argos and uh, and BMO Field. But um, I don't believe that. So uh, I think, uh, you know, in, ter- in terms of improving the atmosphere, I think it's a lot about just staying with what's already, already been working. The problem hasn't really been uh, the atmosphere um, so much as it's been the, uh, the play on the pitch. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. When you look at when the club was really terrible, we our results at home were very good. And then when we uh, kind of had more aspirations, all of a sudden our results at home got bad. And I think reclaiming the Emo Field as a fortress will help with the renovations once the, the roof is on, then the sound will be a bit different. I think, you know, if you want to, I think the club's going to have to pander to, to the supporters groups, really. And uh, get them more involved. Make sure maybe a little more control over the section. Uh, you know, let them do some stuff they haven't let them in the past. You know, there's always you know this 
some some are people are fanatics about pyro, have them give them a little section or something, uh, get people kind of excited to, to go to the park, right? Um, too often, it, it almost felt like a chore. It's like, well, I haven't missed a game since the first season, so I can't stop now. But oh man, this is rough. And if you, I think if you engage the supporters and. I know they've tried, but some you know, hasn't. Maybe maybe go further and and and, that, and really pander to them. And right because now with the new pricing structure, I mean, there's some rumblings there. I think that's going to have, the only way you're going to do it. Right is if you want to fill those extra seats, eight thousand extra seats after a disappointing season, you're going to have to give people that experience. Right that. That in the first few years, when people said, "Oh my God, yeah, the team sucks," but just going to the games is so much fun, you need to reclaim that, right? And you know, there's a supporters group that's not participating. Why are they not participating? I know it's some kind of protest. Is there any way to get them engaged, or you know, to I don't know, to, to, to fix that problem? And I think then, if the South End gets a lot louder, uh, that's going to have repercussions around the around the field. I guess to improve BMO fields, we'll put the general admission talk on the back burner because we've talked about that one on the pod before. I, I guess something simple that I was thinking of is uh, there's going to be an extension to the East Stand. Um, surely there's a way to move the away supporter section closer to our supporter section in the South End. Um, there's not often a huge away support. So the odds of them actually making a noise that can be heard in the south end is even far between. And even when there is, you look at Montreal, they brought a lot of people to that last home game this year. And then they stuck them in, I think it was the northwest, way away. And there's no way that we could interact with songs or respond to banter, either side of the, either team. You know, if we can bring both sets of away fans closer, it may make security's job a little bit more difficult. But if you just look at some of the places, you know, I've been to Man City's ground and Liverpool's ground, and when you get those two bands just divided by a thin piece of mesh, the banter that goes back and forth really gets the energy going in that area of the stadium. And if you could, you know, get that going when there's Columbus fans there, when there's Montreal fans there, I think that would do absolute wonders to improving the atmosphere, even beyond the general admission ideas. If we can find a way to maybe connect these last two questions. Um, you know, one that I'm thinking of, of course, coming out of 2014 or 20, end of 2013 and of 14, uh, we obviously know how much money was spent on this team. And it might not be that outrageous for a new president to come in and the MLSC board say, you don't, you're not getting that kind of money. In fact, you're not getting anywhere near that kind of money. You're actually getting little to none. And I, I don't want to put a figure out there because I to be honest, I'm, I'm kind of ignorant of how exactly the numbers are crunched and how they would, you know, allocate money to Toronto FC. But I'm trying to frame this next question along the lines of, you know, you only get a fraction of what, of what Tim Laiwiki got in 2013 and 2014. So much so, I mean, you could only, you don't have enough money. And this isn't just for signing players. I'm talking about across the board uh, in terms of hiring new, new coaches, you know, day-to-day operations, anything like that. You know, if you had something, they said, you know, we only have $5 million now. Mm. You got to make do. What would your priorities be? What would you do to hopefully get the most paying for your buck? Well, well, assuming that I can't stop spending money on things uh, just because I only have $5 million, So maybe I, uh, I don't get to spend on coaches anymore. Of course, I still do. I think it all starts and ends with uh, 
the team and their performance. Um, so I would start with players and coaches. Now, how do you do that if you've got a limited budget and you can't go out and you can't just spend it on a DP, right? You got to scout. You know, you got to you got to put the pieces in place to try to squeeze as much uh, bang for the buck as you possibly can. So I, I would start there. I'd probably start with um, with scouting, uh, smart signings, and working within the league too. You know, like smart trades. Um, those are tried and true ways of uh, making a better team that I think probably we haven't explored enough. Yeah. And you know what? I'm going to piggyback off one of your really last answers when you talk about marketing. I would go ahead and fire all the marketing staff <laughs> and reallocate their salaries to coaching and scouts. That To, 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 to tie them both in together, right. that's, that's what I would do. My little slick move is that I would say, maybe I would keep one person on board because obviously someone needs to, right. needs to do something in that regard. But uh, you know, whoever came up with the idea of putting Taurus and Frings at the GO train, fired. Whoever's idea it was to start having um, Rachel Bonetta start doing uh, movie interviews, you're fired. Uh, whoever hired Rachel Bonetta, you're fired. Um, Rachel Bonetta, you're fired. And uh, from that point... Uh, I would hopefully have a little bit of extra coin that I could say, I'm going to go, I, you know what I would do? I would probably go out and find the best academy coach mm. available and have someone who's hot shit overseeing my academy. Like if I had, if I could really pull it off, I would go to Barcelona. Right. Right. And I would say, who, who could I poach here? Possibly? Or South America. Yeah. Yep. Or, or like, um, who is it in uh, Mexico? Is it Pachuca who has a great academy? There's yep. a couple teams in Mexico, great academies. I would do that. And that's where we could spend money. I know this question started with you only have, say, $5 million. Um, Maybe with a budget like that, you don't have the money to bring over someone like that. But, you know, I mean, assuming that uh, you were able to, that's a good uh, way to spend your resources. It's a long-term investment. Mm-hmm. You think of it like that. Right? Rather than Jermaine Defoe was short-term. Yeah. Right? Like, that's a short, that's not even Very an Very short-term. That's not an investment, right? That's just short-term spending, looking for short-term results. Uh, you spend that kind of money on on your coaches and you spend that kind of money on your academy and that's a long-term investment mm-hmm. that would could pay massive dividends. And I think that's, I would say that again, is something that's really gone over the heads of MLSE and Toronto FC of saying, we went we went out and have created one of the best facilities. Everyone who comes to this club says the Kia training facility is one of the best they've ever stood in or played in or been a part of. Can we say that we've had the coaching has has been at the same level? Has has everything in terms of this club been at the same level of the facilities? Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. Well, right? you know, I I hope I hope it was because uh, our former academy coach is now our head coach. So yeah, yeah. Sometimes <laughs> I you know sometimes the metaphor I draw is like that you know super hot girl or supermodel that's just got nothing upstairs. You know what I mean? Like everything looks awesome from the outside, but there's really no substance right. after that. So. <laughs> Um, I actually, I like this question a lot, <laughs> um, because I, if I'm sticking to, if I'm sticking to my number one initiative being giving back to the fans, what I'm doing with my tight budget is investing perhaps even what's left from stadium rentals into some sort of supportive base closer to the ground, whether that be, um, just even a shelter with walls because we're used to standing outside at this point. Um, just anything where we can gather. And I know that supporting groups already have their clubs that they like to go to, and, and that's fine. But my idea, it sort of takes from something that it exists in the Netherlands, among other places. And it's a supportive base that's close to the ground. So you can go to this place, and I know a lot of TFC fans may watch Premier League games on a Saturday morning and walk over to BMO for the afternoon kickoff. Allow this place that's right near the ground as your place where you can watch those Premier League games or those international games 
before Toronto Sea starts, have this place where the supporters pick the price of the food and drink, and whatever profit comes from this place, that goes straight into supporter initiatives, whether it be buying TIFOs or um, the money that's needed to get choreographed flags or cards for mosaics. Nothing fancy to the building, but anything that comes from this place, give it straight to the supporters to help their initiative through banners or flags or any of that sort of gear. Um, other than raising the price of beer. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think, you know, again, I think the league itself is developed for this. And so I think if you take advantage of the draft, if you recruit players from, say, NSL and USL Pro, you're going to definitely get players on a lower budget who could probably, you know, and the difference between the lower-end MLS player and the upper-end NASL players, there's not a huge great difference, right? But there is a difference in how much you have to pay them. The other interesting thing is, is recently um, in a British paper, um, some people did some research and they found out certain like price of tickets around the world and, and how much players got paid on average around the world. And what the interesting thing was is despite MLS always being criticized for how low they pay their players, the average salary in MLS is actually much higher um, than many prominent leagues in Europe and around the world. So, you know, if they expand their recruiting capabilities and look at players in these leagues such as Scandinavia, um, Africa, South America, some countries in South America, they could get top quality players, almost better players better than they currently have, um, at below, you know, at, at decent salaries, like below uh, DP and, you know, in the $100,000 range. We're heading down the home stretch. A couple more questions to go, Paul. And this is an important one. We've, we've kind of touched on it. You know, you brought it up at the beginning, but this is important. Obviously, as president, you're coming in the club, you're assessing these new things. Is Greg Vanny, is Tim Bezbachenko, are these your guys for this club moving forward? It's, it's a difficult question because I don't know if it's possible to really answer it um, in a vacuum because we have a history as a club. And uh, we've tried a lot of things. Uh, most of them have been uh, really short-term and temporary. You have to, I think, uh, avoid another regime change, another turnover. I don't think that's going to help the club. How much rope do you give the guys that are there now? I, you got to give them a couple of years, I think, you know, to kind of set their vision and uh, see if they can reach the goals that you know you would demand of them. But you always got to evaluate too, right? Like you can't you can't just give people carte blanche. Yeah, I would say maybe maybe at the end of the season, I would have said. No, neither of them. Mm. But so there's been a few things over the last couple of weeks. I think you saw it too. Steve Botcher did an interview with Greg Vanny that I was pretty, Sounded good. I was pretty impressed with the answers that he gave, uh, how candid he was, and that I usually like. I felt that when Ryan Nelson spoke about things, my bullshit meter was kind of going off. When Paul Mayerner would talk about things, my bullshit meter was going off the charts. Mm. But this interview I saw with Greg Vanny. Uh, you know, he was saying, he was hitting a lot of keywords and saying a lot of things that resonated with me in terms of, you know, how you get from point A to point B and being very candid on the problems that he recognized and the things that he saw and what he expects. You know, I really liked, he had one point where he was saying, bringing in established people, like players that have had success and building the team around that. And I remember years ago, I wrote an article that when we, I think it was going into 2010 and we signed like Jacob Peterson and, and Nick LaBroca and whatever, and people were so positive. I said, my, my, my point was that we signed a bunch of guys who were mid to low table players. How can you expect the team to be competing at the top? 
you know, you need to look out and try to bring in guys who've been at the top, bring that attitude into Toronto, bring that experience into Toronto. They'll understand and they'll know that when times are tough, what it means to get to be better and how to take a team into success. So to actually answer the question, I would, I would definitely want to see, I would want to go through 2015 to see what happens definitely. before I wouldn't like a month ago, I would have said, no, uh, Vanny doesn't have experience, but you know, I think this is the, these are the cards that we've been dealt right now. If I'm also realistic and it'd be a bit absurd to kind of wipe it clean, like you said, and try to start over, um, especially with time already lost. Um, I've expected that Greg Vanny and Bezpachenko have already started laying plans for 2015. We got to go through it. We have to see it through. Yeah. Uh, you know, it always, always depends on, on, you know, who the president is walking in. Um, because the main thing I would think if you're going to have that, uh, you know, three headed, uh, TFC management structure, um, is that they have to be, they have to be on the same page. I think one of the big issues last year, and it became very apparent when the team sort of imploded in, in August was that, uh, Bezpachenko and, and Ryan Nelson weren't on the same page. So, you know, I think if the new president walks in and it's Garth Lagerway and he's got a good relationship with Tim Bezpachenko and, uh, and Greg Vanny, as you would think from, you know, Vanny's previous years with the RSL Academy and probably the dealings that he had with Bezpachenko when he was at the league office, then, then that probably makes sense. You know, in, in terms of looking at both of those guys specifically, um, it's hard to judge them. I mean, I think... This will be the first season where um, Bezbachenko will will have his guy, his preferred coach, in place rather than inheriting Ryan Nelson. So there's kind of a question mark there, but um, you know we'll see. He's he's got a lot of qualities, or at least we've been told about a lot of his qualities in terms of you know his knowledge of the cap and uh, and the league rules and and his relationships around the league. So um, in some sense, there there was always the question over over the past season when new players were brought in whether you know, that was Tim Bezpachenko bringing him in or Ryan Nelson. So I think Bezpachenko is still strangely somewhat of an, of an unknown quantity. Um, even, you know, the, doing the, the well-done job of draft, uh, Dan Lovitz and um, Nate Hagland. I don't know if, if we're 100% sure right now whether those were Nelson choices or, or, or Bezpachenko choices. So I think the, the, jury's, the jury's still out on, on Tim Bezpachenko. With respect to Greg Vanny, I'm, I'm actually uh, uh, very impressed with, um, with him when he speaks, um, his ideas, his knowledge, the plan that he's outlined, and, and his work ethic. Uh, he clearly now needs to translate um, all of that impressive verbiage into actual re- results on the pitch. Unlike some people, I don't put too much stock in the games at the end of last season. Um, I think that... Uh, it would be would have been hard for anybody to come in with that team in the mental state that it was in at that point and um and actually uh, turn it around so i think he deserves the, fre- the the fresh slate and he is highly regarded by a lot of people i i would stick with the uh, stick with greg vanny at this point Bezbachenko, i believe in him i think he's done a great job he's uh, almost as good as Masai jury um, and anyone who's ever heard me talk about Masai, he's um, more Messiah than Masai. I, I like Bezpachenko. I like the moves that he's done. He cannot be blamed for you know, the, the faux signing. That's not on him. I think he's done very well. Fanny on the other, chan- on the other side, it, it's such a, a, a weird conundrum because it's 
okay, he's not the right manager. He's not the right gaffer. He doesn't have the experience. He, he's got his A-levels. That's basically all you can say about him, right? But <laughs> you can't fire another coach. Like, can you really do that? So what do you do? It's like, well, I know this guy is not ready for this level of competition. Maybe in a few years he will be for his next gig. Do I let him learn on the job or do I bring in somebody new and just destabilize everything again? Uh, but if you are going to do that, you have to do it quick because you're going to want to get the players in the January window that fit whoever's the new manager's system, right? So that's, as a new president, that's the toughest job. That's, what do I do with the manager? I think Bezbachenko is safe. He should be safe. You have to trust that, um, you know, he comes from the league. He understands how to rework a contract to make it fit under the cap. Like, he, there's too many positives on Bezbachenko that you can't, you can't ignore that. Um, on Vanden, you can't say that, right? The positives don't outweigh the negatives. Um, and that's a difficult decision. And that's the, the most difficult decision. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I I understand some of the criticism, but I do, you know, again, as I said at the beginning, I think the team isn't certainly in a better direction right now um, than they were, you know, last year, but more, more, more definitely a couple years ago. I like Vanny in terms of his history um, within the league, in terms of his history with American soccer. I think you saw that with the uh, dispersal draft and them drafting Delgado, who's a player with, you know, a potential player, a player who's a prospect. Um, and that, you know, I think one of the things that's important for Toronto is stability. And I think stability is more important with the front office than it is mainly with the coach. Um, because that, you know, hopefully what the front office is doing is looking long-term and looking where the club's going to be three, four, or five years down the road. And again, I think that's very important for Toronto. I think one of the things Charles lacked in the past is having a plan for the future and, and, and an objective. With all these questions uh, we've gone through, Paul, the last one, this is mostly an all-encompassing question to kind of finish it off and hopefully, as I've said, and we've touched on here and there, to at least give this club some sort of real vision moving forward. Um, something that I think has lacked for eight years that I've never really been confident that what I'm seeing out there is part of any kind of master plan. You know, as, as the president, you're the new president of this club, Paul Marhu. And glad to meet you. Yeah. What would you do or how would you, you know, start your tenure at Toronto C in terms of laying out an identity for this club? I would say that in the past, what's kind of stuck, struck out to me is that there was a frailty to this club. Whether it was late in games where we'd give it up or, you know, midway through the season when we'd have a collapse in form and start losing a bunch of games. Uh, I think this club needs to be disciplined in what's asked of them and what they're able to accomplish and confident that they can do it. And uh, this, there's no reason why Toronto... Um, within the MLS shouldn't always be at the top of the table. We've got the resources. We've got resources far greater than a lot of clubs in this league, um, a lot of clubs with more success. Um, so that's what it would be. It would be uh, confidence, discipline, an attacking, forward-thinking style of football. I think that's what people want to see, and uh, I think we're capable of giving it to them. This one's difficult because I think Toronto C has a bigger potential identity than what they would have this season. I think if I were coming in as president this season, the identity I'm walking into is a club that is 
perpetually underperforming, possibly perpetually underachieving if you compare it to what could have been with a number of the teams that we've seen in the history of the club, the short history of the club. But play on this idea of being underachievers. Let people underestimate you. Try and bring in players that aren't going to be, you know, have their face plastered on the go train. Try and bring in players that are going to be a subtle introduction, like last year's Southampton or Swansea the year before that. Be a scrappy team, a Tony Pulis team. A tie is still a point, and you've got to start somewhere. But be that underachiever to the opposition minds, but get those points that add up and possibly build a team from there to the point where people admire you for what you've become because we're starting from nothing. So we have to become something. And I think that if we try and catch people off guard and we be that surprise factor from the season, I think that could really be our, our identity to stick with. Yeah, I mean, they, they currently have an identity. Fortunately, it's not a positive one. Their identity would be, you know, a longstanding underachieving team that uh, that tends to, to crack when the going gets tough. So uh, I'd probably be looking to, to flip that identity on its head and, uh, and have them be a, you know, a hardworking team that's consistent across a full, a full season and a team that actually uh, rises to the occasion when, when, uh, when their backs are, for, are up against the wall. You know, a lot of the things that someone coming in would see as, um, you know, negative aspects of TFC would probably see them somehow as a, uh, congruent with negative aspects of all of the MLSC teams that have underachieved over, over the years. I mean, the Leafs and the, and the Raptors and, uh, and I know they're not an MLSC team, but even, even the Blue Jays over the past several years, something about Toronto. So the one thing we've seen um, as a positive with MLSC as an, as a larger organization is, is how the, the Toronto Raptors have turned it around recently. And I think there's something with the way they've uh, built that team and, and sort of have that team really succeeding right now and, and are things that are, are doing right. You know, they're a very hardworking team. Um, they're very much, you know, you know, the model has always been all for one with Toronto FC, but I think that right now that probably applies more to the Raptors. They're very um, integrated with the team and play for each other. And it's not really a star system or anything like that. And generally we see teams in, in MLS uh, doing well with that. And I think, uh, the Revolution are a good example of a team that has has depth and and uh, you know has a lot of guys who aren't wouldn't be considered superstar material, but the pieces fit fit well together. So, you know, I think if you want to you want to look within the organization as a way of building a, a new team's identity, maybe some type of uh, lead the north on the uh, the soccer side. Yeah, I think you know I think the most important thing is to become a consistent winner. Um, not only for Toronto C fans, but also for the city of Toronto, because we can't, we can't develop that in any sports. Um, you know, I think it's interesting. I think the you know, the the fact that the team is going to start a ESL pro team, um, you know, players coming up through the academy. I do think there is some responsibility to the Canadian player, but I also think the Canadian player has to have a responsibility to the team and prove to Toronto C um, that he's good enough to play at that level. But long term, you know, as I said, I think if Toronto can be a consistent um, team in the league, I think all the other things in terms of the fan base and, um, you know, reputation will will grow with that. I would want, if I'm looking long term, right, I want the club to be known as a perennial 
favorite, a contender, right? It's like year in, year out, I know I'm going to make the playoffs. I know I'm going to compete. I know I'm going to uh, you know, field a good team. Um, I know that I, my academy is, is, is feeding into the top club and just all around, you know, successful. Something that, that has a consistency and a um, kind of like a bedrock, right? Within, like, too, too many clubs are kind of up and down, right? It's like the DC United and all that. I think if you, if you can, uh, you know, be more like a, a Salt Lake where it's just year in, year out, you know Salt Lake's going to be good. They're never flashy, but you know they're going to be there. And from time to time, they can break through and win one, right? And I think that's what I would want my, my club's identity to be is from a from a successful point of view, from a, from an on-the-field point of view, I think you play to the, the Toronto, you know, the weather, the, the, the stadium, where we're at, the, the crowd that you're, you're attracting, and make it tough for people to be here. Be physical. Um, I know it's difficult to be that physical with, with the referees we have in the league, but at some point, that, that has to be got better, and I think you can still do that, right? You can be that intimidating presence, maybe not as, like, Actually, did right where you're just working people to the bone, but you know, make it difficult for, for people to come in here. Uh, you, can't, you, can't, you can't come into BMO and bully us, right? And make sure that you know the teams come in and it's like, all right, we're you're coming in and we're going to kick your ass, and you know, we're going to make it really difficult for you to get any kind of result. And I think that's where you build it from, right? And getting that consistency. So, and to get that consistency, you have to as to what the team is. So, I think as, as a new president, I from that point of view, I have a bit of an easier task because anything I can implement, and I can kind of look around and say, all right, what's the best practices? And say, all right, this is going to be our identity and this is what we're going to strive towards and then make changes towards that. And that's really the, the, probably the easiest task for the president is just to define what that is and, and kind of, and then try to make changes towards it, right? Yeah, I think if I wrap this up and put in my two cents to kind of, kind of like piggyback off yours, no excuses. I think that's sort of summarizing what you're getting at. Yep. My my identity for this club and the vision that I would say, going back to my earlier ones in terms of saying, laying out a plan to become champions, the overriding thing is no excuses. Yeah. There's no excuses why they're really, and, and I'm saying this from a, from a standpoint of a fan, of someone who's in the city, there's no excuse why Toronto FC shouldn't be the best team in this league, shouldn't be the best team in North America. Yep. We have as much, if not more, resources than any other club. We're using them wrong. You know, we should be able to bring in good coaches. We should have the best stadium in the league. We should have the best support. Everything there should be, should be lined up to make this, this club and this team the best in, in North America and competing in our hemisphere. Um, and that would be the thing that I would say is that no excuses. This this is the, this is the path we're heading on, and anything short of a title, anything short of being champions, is not good enough. Eastside Stand Up is the only Toronto specific podcast breaking down the game right after it happens. We want you to get involved. Reach out to us on Twitter at Red Nation Online or on email at info at rednationonline.ca and share your thoughts on how the Reds did on the pitch today. As well, check out other podcasts on rednationonline.ca from the Black Hole and the Gaffer and Hooligan, giving you all the coverage you'd want on Canadian soccer. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.